0: These gentlemen have been together for over 15 years here to perform from their latest CD, Isolation Drills. Please welcome Guided by Voices. Hey, hey, girl. I only
1: there probably aren't that many bands that have influenced indie rock more than Guided by Voices. Since the early 80s, their plethora of lo-fi hits across dozens of albums have been a staple on the college radio airwaves and in small venues and bars around the world. And the mastermind behind the whole operation seems like a strange fit for a podcast about sports. But before Robert Pollard was an indie rock pioneer, he was a star athlete. He even played baseball for Wright State, where he threw the school's first no-hitter, ever. And that story is next. But first, we've got to do that whole thing where I plug stuff. For starters, I'd be eternally grateful if you'd subscribe to this podcast. Just click subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, so you can get a somewhat intrusive alert each time I put out a new episode, which is occasionally. Also, check out my website, smallleaksdude.com. You know, this is just my opinion, but podcasting is more than just a trend. I think it's here to stay, because storytelling's here to stay. Probably always will be. And chances are, you have a story to tell, and maybe you want to tell it. Brands, artists, business owners, or just anyone looking to connect with an audience has a story to tell, and I want to help tell that story. From sound design to publishing to basic consultations, I love connecting with podcasters of all stripes to make their podcast sound good and to publish their content. So no matter where you are on your podcasting journey, I can help out. I can help you make a handcrafted podcast that fits your style and personality. So visit the site and drop me a message if you want to create something together. Now on to this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called, The Club is Open. Uh,
0: test, test, test. Yeah, I think Hello. we're
1: good. Yeah, I think we're, <laughs> I think you can tell, them, you can tell I'm a really polished That's producer. me and my friend Ryan, messing around with a video conferencing app to record this episode. Back in college, we hosted a radio show together called The Sports Cycle. It was a sports talk show, and we were tasked with trying to bridge the gap between the college radio world and sports. The sports cycle. I'm gonna give a a clue here now. I don't want any more bullshit time during the day from anyone. That includes me. On WUAG 103.1 FM Greensboro. I'm hungry as Darnell Docket. Like <laughs> I'm not sure if we succeeded, but we had fun in the process. Especially because I believed at the time that it would lead to fame and fortune. It didn't, by the way. But again, we had fun. So yeah, I got my start in college radio. Now you can make of that whatever you will, but like a lot of college kids from the late 2000s, I was confronted with a lot of musical choices. By the time I first took to the airwaves, Vampire Weekend was breaking down everything I thought I knew about genre. And within a few years, Kanye West and Arcade Fire both put out game-changing concept albums that competed for a Grammy. By the end of my four years, I was convinced that Elvis Costello was the better Elvis. And okay yeah you get the point, I know a lot about music. Anyway, for someone trying to make a career playing other people's music, it felt like the world was this big, expansive place where human ingenuity and storytelling knew no bounds. That's still true today, by the way. But it is kind of odd that one of the bands that stuck with me this whole time is a somewhat obscure group from Dayton, Ohio, who recorded a lot of their own music in their basement.
0: I had a friend at college named James, and he would have these parties where we'd sit in his living room, And listen to records on a record player and smoke tobacco out of corncob pipes. And we would all be wearing sweaters and drinking terribly cheap beer. And Guided by Voices was his favorite band and it would always be in the rotation. That was the kind of scene that Guided by Voices in college sort of represented and appealed to. I knew James too.
1: Now I never went to those tobacco and sweater parties, but I do owe James a debt of gratitude. You see, back in 2008, my first day ever on air, James had the show before me. I had no clue what to play, so I told him I was a huge Weezer fan. He then suggested a track from the Future Heads called Walking Backwards. I played it, and it was awesome. That's how it all started for me. And each week, I'd tell him a band I liked, and he'd make a suggestion based on that. In the process, I learned a lot of music from James. So I hope if James hears this, that he's doing well. Also, I value Ryan's input here for a couple reasons. One, he's basically an encyclopedia of cool music information. Two, he's a fun guy. And three, he's the one that really introduced me to Guided by Voices. On the sports cycle, we used to break up each segment with music, since we didn't have commercials or anything like that. For a while, I didn't let him choose any music. He once picked a slow six-minute track from Bon Iver, so I retained creative control over the music that we used. I guess I slipped up one show, or maybe I just decided to be less difficult, and he played I Am a Scientist, one of Guided by Voice's best tracks. I liked it, and a few months later, when we saw them at Hopscotch Festival, I was totally hooked.
0: The live Guided by Voice's experience, it's so many songs back to back to back. They average about 60 songs per set. Their last show, which was a New Year's Eve show, so December 31st, 2019, in L.A., I just looked this up, they played a hundred songs.
1: A <laughs> hundred songs in a single set seems pretty crazy. Until you consider that it's just a fraction of the Guided by Voices catalog. And then add Robert Pollard's solo work into the mix... That guy is one of the most prolific writers of his generation. I guess like all other people in the history of human existence, Pollard's story began at birth. He was born on Halloween 1957 in Dayton, Ohio. As a kid, he was a skilled athlete, and he loved music. His father discouraged the music part, but it seemed to stick with him. While a three-sport athlete at Northridge High School, Pollard also played in a heavy metal cover band, often going to arena rock shows. Now, like I mentioned just a few seconds ago, Pollard is one of the most respected songwriters of his generation. He's loved by his peers, critics, and fans alike. So ultimately, you could say his story was and still is a success. I think. But the transition from three-sport athlete to indie rock frontman wasn't particularly smooth. In his book, Closer You Are, Matthew Cutter chronicled how Pollard changed the course of indie rock. Not only was he an ex-jock, and by the time he formed GBV, a heavy drinking fourth grade teacher who often nursed his hangovers in the teacher's lounge, he was also just a dude from Dayton, Ohio. Indie Rock was hip. Young people from big cities and cool outfits dominated the scene.
0: Guided by Voices I don't think has ever looked cool. The only thing that I think of them as a visual identity is if you see them, sometimes they'll have behind them a sign that says the club is open that they'll turn on. The neon sign they'll turn on as when they enter the stage and then they'll turn it off when they leave the stage.
1: Just keep that visual in the back of your mind. That neon sign that says the club is open. Because I think it's a nice little allegory. So even with the constant lineup changes and a few hiatuses and unkept promises of retiring, Pollard and his bandmates overcame quite a bit to become a massively successful group, and still rocking out four decades later. And some of it you could all chalk up to an elbow injury. Because Pollard wasn't just a guy who was good at baseball. I mean, he was that. By his own estimation, he could throw a football 70 yards and a baseball 90 miles per hour.
0: How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the
1: mountains? In all seriousness, though, you might could make the argument that Pollard had an actual shot at the big leagues. Or at least at the minors. Which is interesting because I've always likened the minor league ballplayers to garage rock bands. The odds of making it big are slim, and you've got to have grit to get there. One thing's for certain, whether it was on the stage or the baseball diamond, Bob Pollard had grit. Still does. May 11th, 1978, for example. While pitching for Wright State University, Pollard threw the school's first no-hitter. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, the event itself isn't entirely unknown. ESPN, Sports Illustrated, and some other outlets have all had like, I don't know, page 5 stories on the game. Not exactly headline stuff, but it's out there on the internet but I wanted to learn more about the game, like, the day it happened. So I scoured the internet for interviews, reached out to people, and found old archive newspaper stories. I wouldn't say my efforts were a rousing success, but they weren't totally fruitless either. Wright State was just in their eighth season of college baseball when history was made that day. It was a 9-1 win over Indiana Central. It would be another 10 years before they joined the Division I ranks. Of the game itself, Pollard said, If I had known I was in the process of throwing a no-hitter, I could never have done it, Pollard told the Daily Guardian. The student paper at Wright State, now known as the Wright State Guardian, and yes, that is my best Bob Pollard impression. He thought he lost a no-hitter in the fourth inning, when first baseman Kent Stuck knocked down a hard grounder from Indiana Central's Rusty Goods which is an actual name, it turns out. With a runner on first, because Pollard walked five batters that day, Stuck hurled the ball to second to get the lead runner out, which was the correct thing to do. That allowed good spatter to reach first, but that, of course, is scored a fielder's choice, not a hit. Pollard apparently didn't get the memo. With some of his control issues and an error by his teammates, a run eventually scored in the fifth. I assumed a hit fell in, Pollard told Magnet magazine years later, when the no-hitter became a viral sensation of sorts. Now, of course, as any baseball fan knows, it's a pretty superstitious sport, You do not, under any circumstances, discuss a no-hitter with a pitcher who's throwing a no-hitter. So his teammates kept a tight lid on it. Pollard would retire the final nine hitters in a row, getting the 27th out when he struck out Joe Gaynor. His teammates mobbed him on the mound, and it was only then that Pollard knew he had made history. Oddly enough, it marked his first win on the season, even though he pitched well that year. This was his fourth fine performance, said head coach Ron Nishwitz. And yeah, that's my other old guy voice, by the way. I can't hire a voice actor, so, you know, we have to make do. It's hard to believe he only has one win to show for it. That game was hardly a fluke either. Pollard's father apparently kept records of his performances, and by their estimation, he threw 12 no-hitters between ages 10 and 20. That's a lot of fastballs, which caught up to him eventually. As a high schooler, he developed tennis elbow, you know, because he threw so hard. That forced him to develop a curveball, which Pollard claimed was never all that good. Hitters would swing at it anyway after seeing predominantly fastballs, he told Magnet. So it seemed to work. And thanks to modern medicine, they had just invented Tommy John surgery at the time, which if you're not familiar, that's where they take a ligament from another part of the body and replace the ulnar collateral ligament in the elbow. Named after the first guy to have the surgery in 1974, hundreds of players have had the operation and the success rate is anywhere between 85 to 92%. So science could have fixed his elbow. Maybe. So even if his elbow didn't keep him from going pro, sometimes it just comes down to personality. If you go back and listen to the Spaceman episode I did, I talked about Bill Lee being something of a maverick. Now, I don't know if that was a personality trait that always served him well. I mean, people, including me, love and remember Lee for being a pretty out there kind of guy. But it's also easy to argue the other side of it and reason that with his talent, if he had just kept his head down and maybe not bothered so many people, he might have played in the major leagues longer. The other reason I bring up Bill Lee is because I took some time to imagine what it would have been like if Pollard had gone pro. In some kind of alternate reality where he made it through the minor leagues and got the call up to the big leagues. Yeah, okay, that's a long shot, but so was quitting your day job to pursue a record deal with your garage band. And look how that turned out. So assuming he did somehow make it to the majors, that begs the question, how would someone like Bob Pollard have fared in the major leagues? Obviously it's impossible to know for sure, but a passage from James Greer's book, Guided by Voices, A Brief History, would suggest to me anyway that Pollard would have been a lot like Bill Lee. Then his pitching coach, this guy named Bo Bolensky, told him to, quote, get his thumbs out of his ass. Pollard responded by telling him to F off. The next thing you know, Balinski, who was like this retired detective guy or something like that, charges Pollard and the two tussle right there in the dugout. He said he remembered that there was another team in the bleachers waiting to play, and he could hear their metal cleats scurrying around in the bleachers. They had come down to watch the fight. Meanwhile, the players on Wright State and the other coaches just let the fight go on a bit before breaking it up. For some reason, that whole visual is just really funny to me. A young Bob Pollard fighting what I imagine to be this old grizzly detective who now coaches baseball while his teammates just watch. It's like a scene from Major League or Bull Durham. So between that interesting episode and his elbow problems, Pollard decided that baseball probably wasn't for him and opted for a career in rock and roll instead. His father then cut off financial support and Pollard would spend the next 14 years teaching at various elementary schools. He once said he took the job because he knew he'd have the summers off, and being a dedicated drinker, he allegedly used the teacher's lounge to recover from his hangovers. It wasn't an easy time. The lack of public support and success, and Pollard's combative nature, made it a difficult experience for everyone involved. Fights between Pollard and his bandmates, and threats to quit his own band, resulted in Pollard being the only constant member of Guided by Voices. For six years, without a label or any real way to distribute their music, Pollard and his managers would take out loans from a credit union and finance the band this way. You know, to me, the kind of image that conjures up, it's a little bit easy to imagine him being a minor league relief pitcher. Well, at least the kind you see on the movies anyways. You know, the guy sitting at the back of a Greyhound bus, smoking a cigarette, drinking in the bullpen, and brawling with the other team? Again, I could kind of see that being his alternate reality. But then in 1992... After the release of their fifth album, Propeller, Pollard and his bandmates got the musical equivalent of a call-up to the major leagues. They landed a record deal. Yeah, it was on a small indie label called Scat Records, but all the same, it put them on the map. Pollard quit his job, and much like his decision to leave baseball, not everyone supported him, but Guided by Voices became indie rock legends. And to use a cliche, the rest is history. You might recall that I mentioned earlier that Guided by Voices are a massive success. Ryan has a bit of a different take. I
0: would think he's the last band lead singer to have thrown a no-hitter. If I could picture one lead singer throwing a no-hitter, it wouldn't be the lead singer from Guided by Voices who is not a model of consistency. It's not a model of doing the same thing over and over again, the same excellent thing over and over again, but more someone who's going to give up a home run, and then the very next inning, just throw all strikes. You know what I mean?
1: I do know what he means, actually. Because sometimes when you listen to their albums, it feels really incomplete, like a collection of demos that they never quite finished. But then you see them live, and there's this big, expanded sound. And sometimes the discrepancy between their studio work and their live work can be a little bit frustrating.
0: I think you don't really understand guided by voices until you see them live and you see the energy and you see the potential. And this is a potential that's been around for now five decades. Cause it started in, you know, 1983. If so you think, man, maybe in maybe next decade is when they turn all of these demos into like a best of 10 tracks, all the best material, but no, we're just gonna throw a 100 songs at you and see what sticks.
1: Okay, Ryan's got a fair point there. Because see, I tend to measure their success by how respected they are by their peers, how dedicated their followers are, and of course my own personal bias. In my head, I like them, so they must be successful. That's logical, right? But to Ryan's point, they have had very little mainstream success. Aside from some cable TV appearances, And a song on the NCAA football 06 soundtrack. Which, just as a side note, that's a pretty amazing soundtrack featuring songs from Jawbreaker, Superchunk, De La Soul, The Clash. That's just to name a few. Anyway, they're closing in on 40 years now. That's 40 years of almost quote-unquote making it. I keep coming back to this minor league baseball analogy. Maybe it's just because I work in minor league baseball and I love seeing local bands play. But when I announce a player's name before they step into the batter's box, I never know if they'll actually make it to the show. The odds are stacked against them. Then when I see bands in dive bars and house shows, I have no clue how many records they'll sell. And in that moment, it doesn't always matter. Maybe at least for a little bit, they're just happy to be doing their thing. Maybe some people are just happy to play the game. Some bands are happy to just play in dive bars because it's what they love doing. Maybe Guided by Voices loves putting out these lo-fi, obscure albums with 20 tracks. Who are we to judge? That neon sign Ryan mentioned, the club is open? I have a hard time believing that someone like Robert Pollard, who has spent virtually his whole life writing and crafting music, would accidentally create such a perfect analogy.
0: The club is open is a metaphor for... You don't really know how long they're going to be on stage, it kind of is. Like your local dive bar. <laughs> like, we'll just keep it open. And Pollard is 62 now and it seems like he's just hitting his stride and they keep touring. And I can't possibly even imagine the real end of Guided by Voices. To me, the club will always be open and that sign will keep flickering behind them and he'll keep doing high kicks and drinking excessively on stage and hopefully keep influencing bands that we... Love.